So whatever it is that you want to do with your time is fine as long as you plan to do it. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So if you want time to live out your values of taking care of yourself, if that's one of your values, do you have time for proper rest on your schedule? Do you have time for proper nutrition, for hygiene, for mental health? Do you take care of your body? Is that on your schedule? It's not just going to happen. And I want people to actually put this in their calendar, to have a time box calendar. Now, people say, oh, that's very rigid. I can't keep a calendar. Well, do you want to be distracted or not? Because the fact of the matter is, you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Nia Ayo. Nia writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed him the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nia is the author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He founded two tech companies and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Nia's writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. Well, welcome to Live in 4D with Paul Check. I'm super excited to share an amazing guest today, Nir Eyal. He's the author of two incredible books, Hooked and Indistractable. Today, we're going to do a little review of Hook to set the stage for his newest book, Indistractable, which is an absolutely important book. Both of them really are. But uh, I think based on the things we're going to discuss today, I think you're going to find his book, Indistractable, is something that you should not be distracted from buying. So, Nir, what a pleasure to have you here with me and all the guests of Living 4D. Oh, my pleasure, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. You know, uh, I've, I've read most of Indistractable now. I, I've, you know, I just got it recently and was squeezing it into my schedule and I got some of your uh, free material and workbooks so I could kind of hop up my, my reading and do a quick study. And I think I got through 18 chapters while I was lifting weights and doing things. And it was a, an amazing uh, book by, f- but for sure. And I, I read hooked, uh, a while back and did a thorough study of that. And I really thought that was a very important book. So I know you're, you're hot on indistractable, but today I'd like to just begin with a little, uh, discussion of hook to set the stage for indistractable. But before we get into that, could you give us an overview of your life path and and how that led you to becoming an expert on how people get hooked and then how to become indistractable? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's see. So I taught for many years at the Stanford Graduate School of Business after starting a couple companies. And I taught a class on behavioral design, which is all about how we can use technology to help people form healthy habits in their lives. And so that's really what Hooked is all about. It's about how to get people hooked to healthy habits, not addictions. There's a reason I didn't call the book How to Build Addictive Products. Addictions are always bad. Habits, however, we have good habits and bad habits. 
So Hooked is about how to build good habits. Uh, Indistractable is how to break bad habits. And so it's not, uh, it's not a flip-flop. It's two sides of the same coin. And I think it takes someone who understands intimately how these products are designed to explain the Achilles heel of distraction so that we can put these technologies in their place. Yes, I, I, I really agree. And I think you did a fantastic job. And it was obvious to me uh, as I studied Indistractable that you'd done a fair bit of research and uh, it looks to me like you spent some time studying behavioral psychology as well. Right, exactly. So that's really what behavioral design is all about. It's about using consumer psychology, behavioral economics, and applying that to some kind of interface that can help people improve their lives. And so what we what we do with behavioral design is to help people, you know, some of my clients have included the New York Times uh, hired me to help people get hooked onto a habit of consuming the news. Uh, Fitbod is an app that uses the hook model to help people get hooked to exercise. Uh, 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 there's an app called Kahoot. It's the most widely used educational software in the world. Gets kids hooked to learning in the classroom. And so this is really a, a, a technique that we can use to help people live better by facilitating healthy behaviors through the technology we use. That's excellent. You know, what I really love to sort of start off here is if you could share some stats on just how hooked people are and what they're hooked on, for better or worse. Yeah. So, you know, we, we can see this anecdotally in our day-to-day -day lives, how technology can ha have a profound effect on our day-to-day -day behaviors. And for the most part, I would argue that these things are good, right? It's, it's, it's uh, easy to succumb to what we call the negativity bias, which is this principle from behavioral economics that says that, you know, we tend to look for the bad in all our situations. And I, I think that, you know, the, the news industry wouldn't survive were not for our negativity bias. We, we want to buy the paper every day to hear about, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. We want to hear about the disaster and the fear and all that. Uh, you know, nobody sells any paper saying how many people didn't die today because of life-saving medicine, life-saving technology, or how much better our life is because of these tools. So, you know, I would argue that the, the vast majority of these technologies are, are really helping us. I mean, many of the technologies we use every day would be science fiction when I was a kid. Um, my daughter, you know, just today we were talking about how audiobooks are something that my daughter loves to listen to and it's it's wonderful uh i would have killed for a, a magical device that reads books to me i mean that would have been amazing when i was growing up we had these you know eight tracks when i was a kid or cassette tapes sometimes um so there's that just one close example or even what we're doing right now right the, the fact that we're uh able to have this conversation and and then you'll publish it on a on a platform for free that can touch hundreds of thousands of people and uh you know all of this stuff is by and large wonderful i think though uh, that that if you are looking for a distraction these days i think it is easier than ever to find uh clearly distraction is nothing new Plato talked about distraction 2,500 years ago when he called it akrasia. And, uh, you know, people have been complaining about how distracting the world is since time memorial. And, uh, that, you know, today is no different. <laughs> but today we're complaining about our technologies, about uh, Facebook and our iPhones. And in a previous generation, it was uh, Super Mario Brothers and comic books and uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And all of these things were apparently going to melt our minds and uh, enfeeble us. And, and, of course, that never happened because our species adapts. Uh, we adapt our behavior, we adopt new technologies to fix the last generation of technology. And so yeah, I know it's not a, a popular opinion, 
But as ben, Benjamin Franklin said, when everyone is thinking alike, no one is thinking. And so I'm a bit of a contrarian. Everybody thinks the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And I, I actually disagree. I think we're getting better and better. And I think that technology is actually facilitating that as long as we know how to get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best. Yeah, I just, are you familiar with the author Dawson Church and his book, Mind to Matter? I no, think I you'd find that. it fascinating. He's a, a a great author, great speaker. I just interviewed him the other day and he gave some amazing stats on all sorts of things that show that we're going through quite an amazing world healing right now from issues of uh, greenhouse gases to uh, he commented on the stats on how many people are searching things like uh, pornography and and basically you know denigrating topics on YouTube and search engines and some of the stats he he showed blew my mind and it gave me a lot of sense of ease inside because mm-hmm. prior to hearing those stats I thought these things were getting a lot worse but uh, when my interview with him comes out you'll have to check it out I think you'll find him fascinating and his books extremely good. Yeah, that sounds awesome. There's another book I'd highly recommend uh, by Hans Ronsling that's called Factfulness that really will blow your mind. It's amazing how uh, you know he, he points out all these statistics of, of what's really happening in the world and how even very educated people don't really understand what a tremendous uh, period of, of, of progress has been made in terms of public health, education, the advancement of democracy, uh, the empowerment of, of women. All of these things have has happened in such a short period of time. Uh, and it's really spectacular. I mean, it, that's an, another wonderful, wonderful book. I'd well, recommend. I'm glad you did. I'll, I, I always take book recommendations from intelligent people seriously, so it won't be long. It'll be in my hot little hands. You, you mentioned Facebook. Um, at this point, mm-hmm. a lot of people are aware that companies like Facebook have been caught divulging personal information that is essentially being used against them, and that Facebook's relationship with Cambridge Analytic- Analytica led to highly specific targeted false media that some researchers say resulted in the swing of the vote from Hillary uh, Clinton to Donald Trump. Um, Nir, I'm curious as to your thoughts regarding the ethics and morals of using and mining people's personal data such as web browsing habits, purchasing habits, entertainment habits, and other such data to hook them into what usually ends up costing them money. And when you look at the statistics that say something like 90% of the U.S. population is two paychecks from bankruptcy, I'm curious, is it really ethical to hook people that can't afford to be hooked and don't realize how much science and potential personal invasion is at work against them? So something I've been promoting now for several years is called the regret test. And the regret test says that in order to ethically use these behavioral design techniques, we have to make sure that we are on the right side of persuasion. Remember, there's there's persuasion, which is helping people do things they want to do. So there's absolutely nothing wrong. And in fact, we should encourage more companies to persuade people to exercise more, to save money, uh, to eat healthfully. Wouldn't you agree that's a good thing to get people hooked to, these healthy habits? Well, yeah, absolutely. That's what I do right. for a living. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so we 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 can't generalize and say that all these pa- tactics are bad. In fact, you know, we we want to use these tactics for good. The question then is, what when does persuasion become coercion? So, the difference between persuasion and coercion is one word: regret. So, persuasion is helping people do things they want to do. Coercion is getting them to do things they don't want to do, things they later regret. And so I think the simple test that I've been promoting throughout Silicon Valley and, and in my talks, in my writing for many years now, and I, I'm, uh, more companies are adopting, 
is I encourage them to run this regret test so that when they use these techniques, it's, it's not as simplistic as saying, well, the tactic is bad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if a user gives you data, is that bad? Well, it doesn't it depend on how the data is used. If we have a technique that makes a game or an app engaging, is that necessarily bad? Well, it depends. And so I hate this very simplistic black and white discussion that I think many have uh, seen in the media these days that technology is good or technology is bad. Well, it, it's both. <laughs> uh, in Hooked, you, you saw this when you read Hooked, the very, uh, the, there's only one chapter in the book devoted to a case study. Mm-hmm. And that case study profiles, it doesn't profile a, a, a video game. It doesn't profile a social network. It profiles one of the most widely used apps in the world that also uses the hook model that I described. And that app is the Bible app. Uh-huh. The Bible app. And the reason I used that example, I didn't want to use a, a video game company or a social media network. That would be too easy of a target. I wanted people to think a little bit and ask themselves, wait a minute, is the Bible app bad? Is the Bible app good? Are using these techniques to manipulate people, to persuade them? Is that good or is that bad? Well, if you think that the Bible gives people meaning and purpose and community and fellowship, improves their lives, well, then you're all for these tactics. But if you think that religion is a force for divisiveness, that it separates people, that it doesn't lead to anything good, and you don't like religion, well, then you think these tactics are awful. And that's exactly what's happening when it comes to the debate over Facebook or the iPhone or the Cambridge Analytica or these techniques. It's, it's way more complicated than I think most people realize. It isn't black and white. It isn't good versus evil. This, this isn't a fairy tale. This is real life. And the answer to this stuff is it depends. It depends on who is using the technology, how much they are using the technology, what they are doing with the technology, and what they would be doing instead of using the technology. It's, it's just not so black and white. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think I'm, I was kind of investigating and, or, or leaning toward the issue of data being used uh, without people knowing it's being used and to create uh, you know, things like media that's not really true and, you know, the, the dark side of it. But uh, yeah. you're I, I more in touch with what is going on on a, on a global scale with these technologies than I am. That's why I'm asking you. Yeah, I think, I think that there is a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, if you look at what Cambridge Analytica actually did, I think it's, it's because it benefited Donald Trump that it became such a news story. Uh, I remember in Silicon Valley when uh, Obama used Facebook to do very similar things. It wasn't all that different. I mean, remember, Cambridge Analytica never gave any data to the Trump campaign. They allowed them to run ads on Facebook. That's what they allowed them to do. And Mm -hmm. the Obama campaign was doing the same stuff. And I remember I would go to tech conferences and everybody would clap and cheer for what a genius the Obama campaign was. They had his campaign manager there and what a genius he was for using social media to influence people to go vote for him. Now that Donald Trump won, oh, now we don't like it anymore. Yeah, you have to keep this stuff in perspective a little bit. Well, that's why I'm talking to you about it. And it's interesting to hear your perspective. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think issues of religion and technology and pretty much everything in life really is a mirror and it Mm. mirrors us back to us. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's interesting because uh, I think technology fundamentally is a tool, right? So, you know, a hammer yeah. is very useful. You can use it to build someone's house, but you can also use it to bash someone's head in. Yeah. Uh, and I think the same goes for technology. If we know how to use it well, it's wonderful. And of course, if we abuse it, uh, then it has some repercussions. I think the, the, the philosopher Paul Virilio said it very well when he said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Yes. And so what do we do? Do, do? do we stop building ships? No. When was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? You never hear about shipwrecks anymore. Why? Did we stop sailing ships? No, we made ships better. Yeah. And so the solution to the current generation of technology and the deficiencies that came with those technologies is, guess what? Ironically, more technology that improves the last generation of technology. Yeah. Well, there's another saying too, you've probably heard, if all you've got in your pocket is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think in many ways, that's our default bias. Our default bias is always whatever is new is scary. That's our default. As, as a species, we, we always are very scared of whatever is new. You know, Douglas Adams had this wonderful quote. He said, anything that is in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and is just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented when you're between the ages of 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. Anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I agree with that. And, and uh, what it brings up to my mind is sort of a twist on that. And, and that is a lot of the things that are old get treated by people as though they're not useful, powerful, or important, such as drinking mm. water, going to bed, moving your body, breathing, mm. and things that are related to our health. And, you know, people will get all interested in high-tech stuff to tell them to drink water, but instead of just listening to their body, they think, oh, you know, it's just water. But, you know, only only when they're really in trouble do they resort back to the old that's that's good and 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 interestingly enough, things like water that, that people kind of just don't think much about because it's the old and it's mm -hmm. just always around. Well, current research on water is showing that it is one hell of a magical solution, mm -hmm. a uh, liquid. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's the same technology that enables people to congregate uh, and to discuss this kind of stuff. You know, the fact that people can talk about less conventional solutions on Facebook is wonderful. Of course, the downside is that the same exact technology lets people talk about all kinds of kooky stuff, like not vaccinating their kids or whatever, that's not based on any good science. So you kind of get both, you know, with this, with this equation, with the opportunity to discuss things that are less mainstream, you also unfortunately get the, the, the confluence of these factors that allow people to talk about uh, things that are not so scientifically based. But that's, that's what we work through as a society. We improve how we use these tools. We adapt our behavior as well as we adopt new technology to fix the last generation of technology. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned something very interesting with vaccination of kids. When you get a chance, listen to my interview with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, one of the world's leading experts on that subject. I won't get into it now because I don't want to distract us, but I think you might mm -hmm. uh, find it very enlightening. Okay, I'll give it a listen. Yeah, it's potent. I've studied a lot of people over the last 35 plus years of my career, everyone from Hippocrates to Paramahansa Yogananda to Margaret Newman, an incredible woman and revolutionary nurse. I have great appreciation and gratitude for all these people who came before me. They inspired me, inspired my career, and helped me to reimagine what it means to be healthy. 
Hippocrates really affected me because his primary dictum, which <laughs> strangely enough is the dictum of the medical system, is first do no harm. So I loved Hippocrates' teachings because he was a man that used about 40 herbs. He had a medicine ball made from a pig's bladder filled with sand that he used with patients, and he was very much into the basic principles of alchemy and really worked to grow his knowledge and to understand life, not just the problems of people such as this isn't working or that's working or, you know, I'm wetting my bed or whatever it might be, but really he looked at people holistically. And he really taught us that there are effective natural means that we should always try first before we go to invasive procedures, which today might be drugs and surgery. I really loved Margaret Newman's teaching. When I found them, I was blown away by them. Margaret Newman was a holistic nurse, and she really taught me a very deep lesson about what health really is. She helped me re-evaluate my own ideas of health and what it means to be healthy. And she showed me that sometimes a person may not have good health, but if they're handling the challenge in ways that grow them, then they truly are a healthy person. And so uh, I really learned to look more deeply into each individual and help them see their challenges as part of their health creation process. I've been really fortunate to be able to coach a lot of clients who reach and exceed their health goals over the years, and I hope that for many of you listening, the Czech Institute has been able to inspire you and educate you to do the same. But there's still so much more to be done. There's a lot to be discovered about human health how we can heal the world and each other, and it's up to you, the next generation of coaches, thinkers, and innovators to become the new leaders in holistic health and continue to reimagine what it means to be healthy and how we can reach our true human potential. So to help support all of you in becoming the next generation of leaders, over the coming weeks, I'll be releasing some short videos on influential figures in holistic health, people that have inspired me, and I bet they'll do the same for you. I will be releasing two special solo podcasts on the past and future of holistic health, and I think you're really going to love them. And finally, on Black Friday, I'll be holding a special 20% discount on all the original Czech products, plus even greater discounts on new courses and packages. All of the skills you'll learn in these courses serve me very well over my career, and I know they'll do the same for you. At least that's my dream. Keep an eye out on Instagram and on the Czech social media channels for updates on all of these events. Now let's get back to the podcast. I love the podcast. Hope you're enjoying it. Um, in your book, uh, on page three, you have a call-out box that caught my attention with these words. A question comes to mind, and before searching they bra their brains, they query Google. The first, to mind, excuse, the first to mind solution wins. So the key words that caught my attention were before searching their brains... It seems to me that the structure of our education system is such that right from preschool to doctorate programs, education systems seem to teach people what to think, not how to think, 
Nir, could you explain or share your thoughts regarding the dangers of not using your own mind or brain and getting hooked in things such as product services, games, et cetera, that may not be in our best interest? And could you explain in more detail what you mean by the first to mind solution wins? Yeah, no, I think you bring up a terrific point that uh, it's not just uh, these technologies that create habits. We are full of existing habits that we have learned or been taught by others. And I think, you know, the school system is a, is a wonderful case study uh, in, in how, you know, conventional education, I agree, it, it has built, uh, it, it was built for um, uh, industrial revolution type skills of rote memorization and keeping people on task and bells and whistles telling us what to do and where to go. And I think if we actually look at the root cause of why kids are using technology as much as they are, why do they seem so distractible? Why do they seem like they are overusing or abusing technology? The simple reason, the, the, um, the proximate cause, the symptom is the technology. The disease is something else. The disease is that we have kids in this country who are deficient in these three psychological nutrients. And this isn't my research. This is 40, 50-year-old research by Desi and Ryan. This is called self-determination theory. And self-determination theory is the most widely studied, widely accepted theory of human motivation and flourishing. If you read the book Drive by Dan Pink, uh, he explores this topic. Great, you know, this, this, every psychologist has heard about self-determination theory. This is not a fringe theory. This is widely accepted theory on human motivation and flourishing. And so Desi and Ryan say that every human being on the face of the earth needs three things. We need a sense of competency, a sense of autonomy, and a sense of relatedness. And so when we don't get those three things, we look for them somewhere. This is called the needs displacement hypothesis. So when children don't feel competency, don't feel autonomy, don't feel relatedness in the real world, they look for it online. And so let's work through these three. I think it's really important. So when it comes to competency, one of the things that has happened uh, that, that has happened in conjunction with the rise, uh, uh, rising use of cell phones and these technologies around 2007, 2008, is also the increased amount of testing that kids are subjected to in this country, right? Because of the rise of standardized testing, teachers teach towards the test all year round. Some kids in some school districts are tested three or four times a year starting in kindergarten. And what the, the reason, the consequence of all this testing is that we have a subset of children in this country who are constantly told you are not competent. And what do you do when you don't feel competent? What do you do when you don't f- have that essential ingredient of psychological well-being? Well, if you don't get it offline, you go online. Yeah. You go play a game that makes you feel like a god, that makes you feel good, it makes you feel competent. And then you've got autonomy, the second psychological nutrient. All of us children and adults, we need a sense of autonomy, freedom, control over our environment and our life. And when we are told what to do, we all rebel. We hate that feeling of lacking freedom. And so if you think about what's going on in this country, that the fact that children today in school are told what to do, where to go, what to think, what to eat, who to be friends with all day long. And there's only two places in society where you can do that to people, and that's school and prison. <laughs> and so, so is it any surprise when they come home, they want freedom, they want control over their lives. Yes. And so where do they go? If they're not getting it offline, they go online, yes. right? If you play Fortnite, you feel in control. You feel like you are a God that feels great because you are free. And by the way, let's put this in perspective. 
you know, we look at the stats of everything that harms kids with the one exception of suicide rates, suicide rates have gone up in this country. But if you look at the data, they have only gone up in rural areas. Why? We don't know. Even though, you know, other OECD countries have had cell phones just as long as we have. Japan has falling rates of teen suicide, Nordic countries falling rates, everywhere else it's holding stable. Even in American urban centers, suicide rates are holding uh, stable only in American rural areas. That is the only part of the country where teen suicide is increasing. Why? We don't really know. There's something going on that we're not really, we can't put our finger on. But if you look at all the other stuff that kills kids, all the other stuff kids do in their spare time that would harm them, we're talking about homicide, uh, teen pregnancy, drug use, uh, car accidents, all of these things, every single one is at a record historic low. This was the generation of the super predator. Remember the super predator a few decades ago? We said, oh my God, this generation of kids is going to be the super predators. There are juvenile detention centers all across this country that are empty. It never happened. Why did it never happen? Well, let's think about it for a second. What did you and I do after school? We used to get in trouble. We used to do all the things that kids today don't do anymore. So if we are going to blame technology for all the bad stuff, why are we also thinking about the good stuff? Why are we also thinking about the fact that if you wanted to create a device to keep kids safe inside, off the streets, away from trouble, what would you build? Well, maybe a video game is not such a bad idea after all, is it? No, so we no. have to look at both sides of this problem. You know, I, I, I hate it when people only think about technology as, in a, as if it's in a vacuum, that if suddenly Facebook turned off, everybody would read Shakespeare and Chaucer in their free time. Give me a break. People have always been distracted. We would go back to gossiping and watching sports and, you know, talking rubbish all day about other distractions. That's what we do. We get distracted. Mm -hmm. And so that is the deeper issue. So we talked about competency. We talked about autonomy. Let's talk about relatedness. And I think this is the biggest problem of the three when it comes to our kids is that we know for psychological flourishing, people need relatedness. They need to feel that they are cared by others and that they care for others in return. But we have a generation of children today that has no time for play. This is the, it comes from the work of Peter Gray, decades old research that has found that we are at a historic crisis level low of the amount of time that children have in this country for free play, meaning time away from teachers, parents, and coaches for them to just be kids and play. It doesn't happen anymore. Why? Either if you have means, if you have money, your kid is in Kumon and swimming lessons and ballet and Mandarin, and they're so hyper-scheduled that they have no time to play. Or if you don't have money, so many parents are terrified that their kid will be abducted, even though this is the safest time in history to be a child in this country. They're so terrified by the media, they don't let their kid go out and play. And so what do we expect kids to do if we lock them indoors or we keep them in these programs all day long that regiment their day like little robots sending them from baseball practice to soccer practice to Mandarin lessons? They're desperate for play. They're desperate for relatedness. So where do they go if they can't get it offline? Guess what? They go on TikTok. They go on Instagram. They go on Snapchat. They go on these apps that give them a sense of relatedness with their friends. That's what they want. It's not so different from what we used to do as kids on the phone in the evening, right? Talking to our friends, that's what they're looking for. And so the root cause of why kids are overusing 
We have to understand that root cause or we're not going to really deal with the real issue here. We're just going to have a, a symptom level understanding as opposed to understanding the, the real disease of what's going on. Well, I'm glad I'm talking to the right guy to get this stuff out in the air. Um, you know, uh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, um, I do a, I, I work all over the world, but I was doing a lot of work in New Zealand at that time, and they were having the highest rates of suicide they'd ever experienced. In fact, they had the highest rate of teenage suicide in the world at the time. And I looked at some research papers looking at it, and the, and the country that was uh, right behind them was Japan. And what the researchers basically identified was that the scholastic standards in New Zealand and Japan were so high in high school that it was causing kids to basically feel like they couldn't keep up or that they weren't good enough. And so there was quite an investigation into that uh, issue mm. there because the kids were just being put under too much pressure and, and getting too much of their sense of identity by whether their grades were good or not. And the kids were putting mm. a lot of peer pressure on each other if they didn't have good grades. What, what year was that? Oh, like I'm, I'm guessing it was at least 10, maybe 12 years ago. Mm, mm, interesting. Okay. But, so even, even before the cell phones, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's been a while and I, I, I was just interested to hear that you say that in Japan, the suicide rates were going down. So I was curious as to what might be doing that. Yeah. Since in recent time, they actually have been going down. Well, that's a so good I, I thing. Had some reform, which is an, another indicator that the real problem is not the technology. There's something deeper going on. Well, you made you did make a statement a second ago that made my ears perk a little bit. You're talking about how it how a lot of this negative stuff is being driven by the media. But aren't they also using hooked technologies to create this boogeyman fear and get you to buy insurance? And, you know, it's. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that no nobody loves this story that Facebook is is hijacking your brain and is melting your brain and is addicting you, that all these apps are bad for you. Nobody loves that story more than the mainstream media. Why would that be? Negative. They're in the same god they're in the same goddamn business. Yeah, negative bias. Uh, yeah, they are in the same bias, but you know They're in the same business. Yeah. Right? Facebook sells ads. How do you think the New York Times makes money? How do you think Fox News makes money? How do you think CNN makes money? They sell your attention to advertisers. They're competition. Yeah. People have asked me many times, Paul, why do you think it is that they publish so much bad news and and scary shit on the news and not very much good news? And I say, well, they're acting on the negative bias. I said, when's the last time you knew anybody that died of a birthday cake or having a good time with their friends? But a lot of people die of getting bit by poisonous snakes and eaten by animals in the wild. So our whole nervous system's wired to look for threats. Yeah. And I mean, so when, they, when I yeah, I, I was in a journalism school in undergrad, and the first rule of journalism is: if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> That's a good right? one. Yeah. We love, we love even, and this is what's so dangerous. I think about more so with mainstream media than with other forms. I mean, thank God that we have this uh, this platform of a podcast like we're talking right now. Yeah, you know, because because if you try and jam a message into a headline in the newspaper or a you know a, a, a 5 second sound bite on cable news it has to be dumbed down it has to be simplified it has to be something that is clickbait and attention getting or else they won't get their attention right they they won't be able to sell your attention to advertisers so thank goodness we have people like you doing podcasts like this that help people 
think about this stuff with more depth and more nuance than what people are forced to to cram into these tiny sound bites that leave people more angry, more scared, more divided uh, against each other because they don't understand nuance. Not only that, they the the disease that all that soundbite shits caused is we've got an entire culture now that actually believe these soundbites as fact. And so instead of looking into research or talking to experts, they walk around acting like they really know what the hell they're talking about without realizing most of this stuff is either taken out of context or it's manufactured. And so- I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, and, you know, I think, um, the, the example a in exactly what you've said is this myth that uh, I've spent the past five years debunking, which is technology is addicting everyone. It ain't true. But it isn't, and it's, it's not addicting me. There you go. <laughs> it's and, and here's the thing. Of course it's not. Of course it's not. Why? Because there's lots of things that are potentially addictive that don't addict everyone. Do we have, uh, do, do lots of people have a glass of wine with dinner? Of course, but we're not all alcoholics. No. Is everyone who has sex a sex addict? Of course not. Is everyone who plays poker once in a while with their buddies a problem gambler? Of course they're not. And yet somehow we love to believe that technology is hijacking our brains, is addicting everyone. That's called motivated reasoning. We want that to be true. Why do we want that to be true? Because then when there's an when there's an addiction, there's a pusher, there's a dealer, there's someone doing it to us. Right. But when we call it what it really is, a distraction, oh crap, now I gotta do something about it myself. Now it's my responsibility. Now I don't have anything to blame my kids' crazy behavior on. That means I need to actually do something about the problem. And of course, we don't like that. Well, most parents don't realize their children are living mirrors of themselves. So it's sad for me to see all the kids getting put on so many drugs and with so many labels and diagnoses that the kids actually are at risk of believing that when really the big problem that I see amongst parents worldwide is that just don't have enough education in being parents and realize that their kids are mirroring them. Mm. I mean, there, there, no doubt about it. There are a lot of stresses that parents are under these days, especially if you know you think about people who are juggling multiple jobs. If they're, you know, if it's a single income household, there's a, there's a lot of challenges these days. But I don't think that that telling people that they're powerless to do something about this problem is is the right answer. That I think there's a lot more good that can come out of having a place to talk about these problems with with uh, other parents. You know, l- using these technologies, uh, having ways to help children learn with these technologies. You know, we do, we do not want to create a, a generation of children who are scared of technology, who think that it's somehow evil. We need kids to be comfortable with these technologies because look, the jobs of the future require. Uh, us to be tech literate. Totally. That's how we are going to advance. And so yeah. we don't want to fill them up with these myths that the technology is rotting their brain and it's evil. We want to teach them how to become indistractable so that they can use it in a way that benefits them. Yeah, it's true. You know, my son goes to a, a Waldorf school. Are you familiar with Steiner's Waldorf system? Oh, yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I did a lot of research and found that to be the system that I thought was best for children in general. And uh, I've also studied Steiner's work for about 25 years. So I'm quite hip to his motives and how he built the system. But when we wanted to, when we went to put Mana in the school, we had to go through a fair, fairly comprehensive interview process. And one of the things that they pretty much demanded was that kids have no access to screens of any types, tablets, phones, et cetera. And I, I said to them, I said to my wife, cause she was the go-between for this. I said to them, you let them know that 
I do want my son to go to Waldorf school. I do understand Steiner's teachings. I've studied it extensively. But there's a lot of things that my son does on his iPad that are very educational. There's a lot of great mm-hmm. stuff out there. And I don't want my son to go all the way through high school and not know how to use the very technology that the whole world's going to be you know, operating on. Or mm. his education, as good as it could be, may actually become a limitation to him. And so fortunately, they you know, said, well, if you can just agree to keep it to a minimum and be mm. careful. Yeah. Uh, so I managed to get him through the interview process. And, and I'm, I'm glad because I, I, I don't want to lie to anybody. I said, I am not going to stop him from using it. I'm just going to make sure that what he's using is high quality. And he learns tons of stuff on, on, um, on, on his iPad and you know, it's, you know, there's such, like you're saying, there's a lot of great stuff out there. It's up to the parents to decide, you know, what they allow the kids access to. And I think that's where a lot of the problem is. Hi, this is Paul Check, and I am super excited to share an amazing line of super nutritional products that I found called Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. If you go to Organifi.com and check out their product line, they have a wide variety of excellent products. And unlike any food-based product company that's ever showed interest in sponsoring the Czech Institute or any of my courses or products or videos or any of the projects I've done that stated they were organic, when I asked them for their organic certification, I never got them. I have been through this before. When I contacted Organifi and asked to see their documentation that they were legitimately using organic source materials. Very quickly, I got an email with 14 organic certifications showing that their source materials are certified organic. Then I put the products to the test with my family and on my own body, and I must say I was very impressed. They have a wide variety. They have green juice, red juice. They have a product called Gold that aids with sleep, muscle aches and pains, and joint stiffness. It helps bolster your immunity. It's awesome. One of my favorites is called Pure, and it's got lion's mane. It's bobab infused. It's great for gut health, brain performance. Lion's Mane is excellent for stimulating neurogenesis. I love to give it to my son, Mana. Another one that's fantastic is Immunity, which is an organic superfood product, and it supports your immune system. It tastes fantastic. I like to put these right in some water and mix them in and drink them or put them into tea. They have a variety of great stuff like green juices, red juice. They have Organifi Gold. It aids with restless sleep, muscle aches and pains, stiff joints, bolsters your immunity. You'll wake up feeling rejuvenated if you have that in the evening. They have awesome protein powders. Angie's about to give birth to our second child, and she's been really enjoying their protein powder. Their products are safe for pregnant mothers. I'm a very picky guy, and I'm hard to impress when it comes to food products. But these guys really got me. I love the products. If you are ready to try some amazing products that can really make your life more efficient, if you don't have time to do a lot of cooking, you're a busy executive or you're a mother and you've got lots going on and you need something to give your kids now and then that's legitimately nutritious, good for them, 
and organic, which means clean and high in nutrients. You can't go wrong with Organifi. Go to Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And when you're checking out, put in check 20s, lowercase c, lowercase h, lowercase e, lowercase k, 20. And you will get a 20% off at checkout. And you will be amazed, just like I was. Can't wait to hear your feedback. Check them out. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. When you're checking out, use the code C-H-E-K-20 for a 20% discount and prepare to be nourished, enlivened, and amazed. I'd love to hear your feedback. I, I couldn't agree more on it. I'm really happy to hear that. I mean, it's it's the same with any medium. You know, I, I wouldn't let my daughter walk into a library, right? We think books are so educational. You know, there's a lot of books out there that she's not ready for as a yes. child, yeah. right? So does that mean books are evil? Does that mean she should never read books? Of course not. It's about giving her the right context. And I, so I, I think part of the problem is that somehow we think that the iPad is an iNanny. And we put this expectation <laughs> yeah. on our technology that it do, it's, it's, we're asking it to do more than it was designed to do. Your iPad is not designed to be an iNanny. It's there as a supplement. It's, and it's perfectly fine as long as it's used uh, in the right way in the right amount of time. So it's, it's, it's much more complicated of a question of is it good or bad. It's really about you know, who is using, how much they're using, and what they would be doing, doing instead of using. All of these should be taken into an account. And I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, my daughter is so much smarter than I was at her age because she has access to these amazing tools. I mean, the things she learns on YouTube, the, the apps that she can use, the, uh, the language learning, the connection with other people. The other day, she wanted to take a class in forensic anthropology. How old is she? <laughs> She's 11. And, and she got into it. She read a spy novel or something or a crime novel. And, and she really, she, they, they dropped this term forensic anthropology. I'd never heard of it before. So now she's taking a class with a retired FBI agent who's in Montana. We live in New York City. And she's taking this class with this, this person. She's learning about forensic anthropology. That, there's no way she could do that a generation ago. Impossible. No, I, and so we, I, think it, yeah. I think it's interesting you mentioned that because that's Penny, one of Penny's big hobbies is forensic anthropology. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> Pe- my wife, Penny, that you just spoke to, she's got a master's yeah. degree in biological anthropology from Cambridge University. Oh, so she's, funny. Wow. She's, a, she's got three master's degrees and she's a pilot. So her processing power is about a thousand times mine. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> but uh, a couple of things. Uh, it's far. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did you finish your thought? Yeah. 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 Um, a couple of things I want to share. Uh, there's an interesting phenomenon going on. You and I talked about how the kind of the video sound bites are getting shorter and shorter. And I, I've said to people, pretty soon it's going to get to the point where there's absolutely nothing you can learn. You'll have ads that are like six seconds long and they won't mean anything to anybody. But paradoxically, at the same time, podcasts are getting longer and longer and podcasts are getting more and more popular. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. What do you think's kind of driving this paradoxical yin-yang video, TV, media, shorter, shorter, but podcasts longer and richer and deeper? This is exactly what is supposed to happen. So I remember a generation ago, so when I was my daughter's age, we were talking about how television was melting our brains and how there wasn't any choice out there on TV. And all that we were watching was, you know, commercials for sugary cereal and and where could we go for independent thought? And so look what happened. Technology to the rescue. 
right? People got sick and tired of crap on TV. And now they looked for other venues. And so I think what you're seeing is a bifurcation that, you know, if, if you want that kind of very surface level news analysis, you look at headlines that, that do nothing but stress you out and don't give you the full story. But if you want the full story, you listen into these type of podcasts that are long form, where you can hear direct from the horse's mouth what people think, and you get the nuance, you get both perspectives, you get, you get the whole side of the issue. I think it's wonderful. And it wouldn't be possible were it not for this amazing technological advancement we've had over the past few years. Yes, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear you share that. Um, how do you define an addiction, by the way? Yeah, so an addiction is defined, it's not my definition, the definition is a, a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So that's very different from a habit. A habit is simply an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. Um, so habits, we can have good habits as well as bad habits. Addictions are always bad. There's no such thing as a good addiction. By definition, uh, it's a pathology. It's something that uh, despite your efforts to stop doing, it's incredibly hard to, to do on your own. Well, you know, I know you don't know that much about me, but I do a lot of addiction rehab for 35 years. I've been dealing with all sorts of addictions and I deal with executives with crack cocaine addictions, cocaine addictions, sex addictions, athletes with all these problems. I'm, I'm like in the addiction business. In fact, if you're interested in addiction, I have a very good uh, inter podcast interview with Dean Tara Bordelli, the founder of The Sanctuary, which is a, an addiction treatment center in us. Uh, um, uh, in Arizona, I'm brain farting on the Sedona, Arizona, but I, I created my own definition of addiction to help my clients and patients understand what it is. So I thought I'd like to share it with you. Yeah, please. I, I define an addiction as any repeated behavior that does not produce the results you want. Hmm. Does it not produce? That sounds similar to that that quote that's attributed to Einstein. I know he didn't say it, but everybody thinks he did, which is uh, that insanity is doing the same thing again and again, expecting different results. Yeah, uh, there's something there's something there. Yeah, Osho says there's no such thing as a sin except doing something twice when you were sure it didn't work the first time. <laughs> yeah, you know that's actually a great point. Of a big reason why I wrote Indistractable is because I was very distracted myself, and I kept doing the same things again and again, despite the fact that they weren't helping me. Right? I would have this to do list of you know a mile long of all the things I said I would do, all the all the to dos on my to do list. And then, you know, 75% of that to-do list would just get recycled from today to tomorrow to the next day to the next day. And so that's insanity. I kept doing the same thing, expecting different results. And, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is that I wanted to figure out how to overcome distraction. I wanted to become indistractable. That's, you know, first and foremost, the book was for me. Yeah, you know, because I've studied all the different schools of psychology and I, I do a lot of deep mental, emotional healing work with people. Um, as I read your book, Indistractable, it was clear to me, as we discussed already, that it's really got a lot of uh, behavioral psychology. But the I'm, I'm kind of curious as your opinion on this. One of the challenges with a behavioral psychological approach is it's really based on what's conscious. And the ego is only conscious of about, some researchers say, as little as three and as high as 7% of our stream of consciousness. The rest of it's unconscious. So depth psychology, the work of Carl Jung and, and others in the, that field really deals with the underlying issues of such as unconscious programming, childhood traumas, life traumas, and things like that are that are actually driving the behaviors 
So behavioral psychology, in my experience, has a certain range of of uh, workability. But if there's too many unconscious drivers that haven't been addressed, be it trauma or just programming, um, there, then it'll put a limitation on what a person's cognitively going to be able to to do without constantly doing the same things over and over again. What's your mm-hmm. experience with with regard to um, how successful? the application of, of your, the models you're showing that are based on behavioral psychology are? Yeah. So the, the very first step to becoming indistractable is understanding where distraction starts from. And I think, I think I I very much agree with, with where you're going with this, that the root cause of distraction uh, is not what we tend to blame. It's not the pings, the dings, the rings. Those are called external triggers. Right. But in fact, the number one source of distraction in our lives is not the distraction that starts from outside of us. It's the distractions that start from within us. Because it turns out the reason we get distracted, the, the answer to Plato's question from 2,500 years ago, why do we do things against our better interests? What's the nature of what he called the carasia? The answer is that we are looking to escape psychological discomfort, right? This is what we call the homeostatic response that physiologically we know this to be true, that when we feel discomfort, the brain gets us to feel bad in order for us to do something to fix that discomfort. So if we go outside and it's cold, well, we put on a coat. If we go back inside and it's hot, we take it off. If we feel hunger pangs, we eat. And when we're stuffed, that doesn't feel good. We stop eating. So physiologically, that, that's how we see the homeostatic response manifested. Psychologically, the same exact thing holds true. So when we are feeling uh, lonely, we check Facebook. When we are bored, we check stock prices, sports scores, the news. When we are uncertain, we Google something. So fundamentally, the root cause of all distraction, if it's not from the external triggers, it's from a desire to seek psychological relief from something we do not want to feel. Now, whether that thing we don't want to feel is is a is a a, a, a home life situation, whether it's a a, a oppressive. Uh, working culture, whether it's some kind of early trauma, perhaps, whatever that is, if we don't deal with that discomfort, I mean, you you know, from your work with addiction, you know, nobody steps on a heroin needle and becomes an addict. No, it, it doesn't work that way. There is always some kind of underlying discomfort that they are trying to escape from, and they don't have the tools to deal with that discomfort in a healthier manner from what they're currently using to 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 get out of their heads to be somewhere else. So if reality is not a good place for you, well, you can find all kinds of things to take you out of that reality psychologically. Yeah, And so that's the root cause of addiction and the root cause of distraction. It's never just about the product, that all addictions are a confluence of the product, the person, right? We know that there are some genetic factors. We know that there's a high comorbidity with obsessive compulsive disorder, but we also know that it's a, it's a factor of how much pain the person is going through. So it's the product, the person, and the pain. It's a confluence of those three things. That's what leads to addiction. And when it comes to a lesser form of, of this distraction, when it comes to you know how in our day-to-day lives we make sure we do what we say we're going to do, it's really about either fixing the source of that discomfort in our lives, fixing whatever it is that's causing that discomfort that we're seeking to escape. And if we can't fix the source of that discomfort, the only other option is to learn tactics to cope with it in a healthier manner. Yes. And the, and in, in all fairness to everybody, getting to the source of what pains us requires a fairly skilled therapist. It's not something most people can do on their own. 
I have a concept I teach my students in my institute called the pain teacher. And the pain teacher is a term I developed to say when pain shows up in your life, it's there to teach you something. And it's going to keep coming back until you actually learn what it is that you need to learn to resolve what the etiology of the pain is, or it will continue to come back. And if you numb it, or whether it be drugs or exercise addictions or food addictions, you just keep inviting more pain teachers into your life. So it's, you know, it's something that it's a, it's a human condition. I think it's sort of part of the global or even cosmic plan for raising consciousness because pain quickens consciousness. But one of the things that's sort of sad is that, you know, as you well know, we have so many easy access distractions to avoid dealing with the real issues of our pain and so many ways to get addicted that it's not really helping us because there's, we don't really have a culture that is willing to spend time with and being conscious of their pain and and asking deeper questions like what what is what is it that's really scaring me or that's right. upsetting me or yeah. Yeah. hurting me and so really my my institute takes people quite deep into how to identify these problems because i have a, a one and a half year program in nutrition and lifestyle coaching and in order to effectively coach people you'll find right constantly i've never met a single person in my entire life and i've given thousands of lectures all over the world and in every audience where I give lectures on this topic, I say, how many of you are over or under exercising and know it? Mm. And almost every hand in the audience goes up. How many <laughs> of you are not getting enough sleep, even though you know you need more? Yeah. Almost every hand goes up. How many of you are eating foods that you know are not doing your body any good, but you keep doing it anyhow? Almost every hand goes up. How many of you are doing things for a work to make money that don't make you happy, but you keep doing it anyhow and resenting it. Almost every hand goes up. Right. So what we see is people really are caught in all sorts of programming that isn't serving them. And I think that a lot of what you share in Indistractable is a very beautiful first step to engaging some of these challenges. Because if a person uh, applies your book and finds that they're still distractible, then it suggests to them that they need help from a skilled therapist, in my opinion. Right. So if it's something that is, you know, an addiction or obsessive compulsive disorder or something that is a real pathology, then that requires more assistance. I mean, the book was not written for people who are struggling with an addiction. It's really written for people who are struggling with distraction. And that's, you know, the vast majority of us. And it's exactly what you said. It's about, you know, you know, you want to do one thing. Why don't you just do it, right? You know you yeah. want to eat right. You know you want to exercise. You know you want to be fully present with your kids. You know you want to work hard at your job. You know how to get ahead. We, we know what to do. There's no more information gap. Who doesn't know that chocolate cake is not as healthy as a, as a good salad, right? We all know this. So why yeah. do we keep giving in? The reason is not because we don't know what to do. It's that we don't know how to stop getting distracted. That's the real problem. And so it's really by following these four steps of number one, mastering the internal triggers. That's yes. the very first step. If we don't find ways to cope with that discomfort or fix the source of the discomfort, and sometimes it is a simple solution, right? Many times it's, wait a minute, the reason I keep checking email incessantly is not the email. It's that I work in a corporate culture 
that is dysfunctional, where we can't talk about this problem. There's a whole section in the book on how to build an indistractable workplace. Sometimes we can solve these problems, right? Sometimes it is changing our workplace environment, our corporate culture. We can do that. We can build an indistractable workplace. Uh, sometimes it is about identifying what's going on at home. You know, what is it that we're escaping from? If, if you can't sit down uh, for dinner with your family, as I couldn't, because stuff was going on in my life and I couldn't sit down with my family for an hour to have dinner without looking at my phone, guess what? It wasn't my phone. There was something I was escaping in my life that I was looking for relief from through this distraction. And so for the vast majority of people, this is not something that necessarily requires professional help. It requires us to sit down and ask ourselves, wait a minute, what is it that is it that's really causing this discomfort and how do I deal with it in a healthier manner that leads me towards traction rather than distraction? So that's really step one of four of becoming indistractable. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, we'll we'll get into some more of that too for sure, and I'm proud of you for for you know working on yourself because the product of working on yourself is now a great gift to the world, and that's really how I've built pretty much my whole institute is tackling my personal you know challenges, be they physical, emotional, or mental, head on, and realizing, damn. <laughs> Once you heal something, you can see it in everybody that has it. If you have gluten intolerance and you heal it, you walk into a shopping mall and you can point out pretty much everybody in there that needs to get off of gluten because you know exactly what the signs and symptoms are. And I think that it is through our own healing that we ultimately become healers. And so I'm, I'm really just congratulating you because your own process is now a gift to all of us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. As, as a, a, an author friend told me one time, research is me-search. So this definitely <laughs> yeah. came from a, from a very personal journey. Yeah. I'm and, curious. And I think that's important. I think people want to know that this isn't written by somebody who doesn't use email, who doesn't use technology, who you know lives as a hermit. No, I love this stuff. I still use these technologies. They're wonderful. But I use them on my schedule in a way that benefits me as opposed to using them because some app maker wants me to or my boss interrupts me or my kids interrupt me. Anything can become a potential distraction. And so what I found was what started as really a journey around tech distraction really became a much much deeper, more nuanced exploration of all distraction. And, and it can come in many different forms. Yeah, I agree. Um, I have a question I really love to hear your opinion on because this is something I'm looking into quite deeply for a variety of reasons. Could you tell us how big a factor artificial intelligence is today in hooking people and any thoughts that you have on the dangers uh, or benefits that AI can share with us? Yeah, I mean, I think o overall, I think AI is going to be a, a net positive. Of course, it's going to come with with downside, right? Just like that Paul Virilio quote that we said earlier, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. There will certainly be problems with it. Uh, but I, I'm pretty optimistic. I think that, you know, by and large, uh, the, the media hype is is way overblown. <laughs> I think we, you know, we want to think about artificial intelligence being something that we see on Terminator or something and uh, that artificial intelligence is going to destroy us and the robots are going to take over. I, I think that's a really uh, naive view of, I think, the potential of artificial intelligence. I think m a much more realistic portrayal is a lot more boring. Uh, I think we're going to see. Yeah, it, it's true, right? Uh, it's it's nowhere near as interesting. It's going to be you know these these advances that come you know in fits and spurts to help us uh, do things that humans are really bad at, like analyze uh, uh, diagnostics to, to 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 catch cancer before humans can. Uh, it's going to help us with with education and and customized learning. It's going to help us do a lot of things that currently are very hard for us to imagine because they're just so mundane. 
but I think I'm 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 much more optimistic than I think most folks are. Of course, who knows, right? <laughs> this is just a procrastination, so I have no idea in terms of what's really going to happen. But overall, I'm. I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty optimistic. Well, one thing that's probably true is that your new future AI doctor is probably fairly indistractable. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. That humans are, are can often be distracted. I mean, let me tell you. Oh my God! If 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 just a, a a tiny percentage of what they say artificial intelligence can do for the medical community, that would be amazing. I mean, I just went to my doctor's office the other day for an annual checkup. Right? I mean, I booked it months in advance. And I get there and they say, oh, there's an hour and a half wait to see your doctor. But I showed up on time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so bring it. I'll take all the technology I can to help uh, help fix this very broken profession in terms of, of actually seeing and, and uh, helping patients. We've all been through that mess. Yeah. In the beginning of Indistractable, you state that in the future, there will be two kinds of people, those that continue to let themselves be distracted and those that don't. So Nir, what do you feel the consequences of remaining distracted are on the individual society, culture, and the world as a whole? So I, I really do think that there is already this bifurcation of people who just kind of let their lives and attention and their time be controlled by other people. Uh, they just don't realize it, right? They don't realize that their life is controlled by their inability to not watch that football game, their inability to not turn on the the news and and follow the latest soap opera and and uh, you know catch up on things that they can't even do anything about, right? There's so we're, we're, we're already hooked, even without these new technologies like Facebook and our iPhone and Twitter. And I mean, those things are just the latest iteration. We've been, we've been unhealthily hooked to many things. And so I think the idea here with the book is to take a step back and ask ourselves, how do we get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us? And we do that by standing up and proudly saying, I am indistractable. Uh, I think this, this is one of the techniques I describe in the book around uh, what's called a pre-commitment. And this, this is called an identity pact. It's a form of a pre-commitment. And it turns out that when we call ourselves a certain thing, when we have a moniker uh, that we describe ourselves as a noun, we become much more likely to stay on track. So for example, when someone says, I am a vegetarian, it makes it much more likely that they will not eat meat. Why? Because a vegetarian does not eat meat. Right. Someone who says, I'm a devout Muslim. They don't argue with themselves, ooh, I wonder if I should have that gin and tonic. No, devout Muslims do not drink alcohol, right? It's just something they don't do. And so this is the new moniker. The new moniker is I am indistractable. I do some weird things, right? I'm, I'm not conventional. Why? Because I'm indistractable. And it's no different from what happened in this country with smoking. You know, I remember in the 1980s when I grew up, my parents had ashtrays all over the house. Now we didn't smoke. My my parent, my mom never smoked. My dad had quit smoking years before. But back then, you were just expected if somebody came over to your house, they would just light up in your living room. Yeah. Today, can you imagine if someone came over to your house and just lit up a cigarette? That would be that'd be ridiculous, right? That would never happen. Well, why why did that happen? So here's what my mom did. She was she was ahead of her time. At first, we used to have these beautiful glass ashtrays. And then one day she took them away and she replaced them with an ashtray that looked like a skeleton hand, right? So it was very morbid and it reminded people when they came over that they dropped their ashes in this skeleton hand. So she was sending them a subtle clue what they were doing to their bodies. And then at one point she started saying, look, if you wanna smoke, you have to go outside. And I can distinctly remember that people thought this was really rude. 
that, that I think they even lost friends over it because they told their friends, please don't smoke in my house, go outside. That was so weird. It was so different. It was so cutting edge. Nobody did it. And so that is exactly what we have to do today when it comes to distractions. We have to be the kind of people who spread what's called social antibodies. Social antibodies is when a society learns these new ways of doing things when it finds that a behavior harms them. So that includes calling out people when we go out to dinner and someone's on their phone as opposed to being with the group. Yeah, we need to call them out and say, hey, is everything okay? Or do you want to join the conversation? Uh, it means we do strange things. Like when we go to work, uh, in every copy of Indistractable, there's what I call a screen sign. It's this piece of red cardstock that you pull out of the book, you fold it into thirds, and you put it on your computer monitor. And it tells your colleagues, I'm indistractable, please come back later. Okay, it's a little bit strange, but is it so different from someone who wears unusual religious garb or someone who eats an unusual diet? Remember a few years ago when someone was vegetarian, people got offended that they wouldn't eat what they had cooked for them? Well, now we've evolved, we've changed. And if someone's vegetarian, you say, okay, no problem. I'll whip you up something that doesn't have meat in it. Yeah. And so we need to also, I'm looking for converts. I'm looking for people who can proudly declare, I am indistractable. I don't answer email every 30 seconds. I'm not the kind of person who lets my time and attention and my life be controlled by others. I am indistractable. In the science of behavior change, uh, a statement such as I am indistractable is called priming. Are you familiar with that concept? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Priming. Uh, 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 Kahneman and Tversky talk about that a lot. Yeah. So that's really what we're doing is we're priming the behavior change by making the statement that encapsulates the direction we're choosing to move in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's it's uh, been shown to be very effective in terms of the psychology of religion. Uh, there were some beautiful studies done on uh, voting behavior using this technique that people who called themselves a voter versus those who said that they were going to vote. So the noun versus the verb, mm -hmm. people who call themselves voters were much, much more likely to actually go vote. So this is how we can use the power of an identity, power of, of a moniker to call ourselves something to make sure we are more likely to do what we really want to do. Yeah. You know, um, in chapter one in uh, Indistractable, you shared that distraction starts with an important realization and you shared the myth of Tantalus. I, I would love it if you could yeah. give us that encapsulation because that's really quite a beautiful myth. And And, you know, before you share... I have a definition of myth that's quite profound. I'm wondering if you ever heard it. Sure, myth, go for it again. Myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. Hmm, I like that. That's very good. It's powerful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's so, also it, it's also very true. <laughs> it's also very true, right? I'll so I'll give for those of folks who don't know the story of Tantalus. Uh, you know, it's it's a lesser known story from Greek mythology. Everybody knows uh, about Sisyphus pus pushing his rock up the hill. But it's funny. My my daughter had a, a book. Uh, about Greek myths, and there was this guy named Tantalus in it, and I'd never heard of Tantalus. But in fact, the, the, we we call things that are tempting but just out of reach in his honor. So when something is tantalizing, yeah. it comes from Tantalus. So the story of Tantalus goes like this: Tantalus uh, was was punished by Zeus. Uh, he was he was cursed to go to the underworld, and in the underworld, he found himself waiting in a, uh, a puddle of water. And above his head, there was a fruit tree with ripe fruit just, in, in, just within his grasp. 
But every time he would reach for one of these fruits when he got hungry, the branch receded and he couldn't reach it. And every time he would bend down to drink water, the pool would evaporate and he couldn't drink. And so this was apparently Tantalus's curse to constantly want things that he couldn't have. And so this is how the story is kind of interpreted is that we, as, as mere mortals, we also always want stuff, right? We, we want more experiences. We want more knowledge. We want more sensations. We want more things. We want more money. We want more status, more, 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 without ever fully grasping what it is we think is going to make us happen, happy. But I think there's actually a deeper message here that's oftentimes lost, which is if you really think about it, what's Tantalus's real curse? He is, after all, in the underworld, and dead people don't need food and don't need water. So I think the real story here is not that Tantalus kept reaching for stuff just out of grasp. The real story here is the folly of the fact that Tantalus never realized he didn't need those things to begin with. What would happen if he stopped reaching? What would happen if he stopped crouching to try and drink the water? Nothing would happen. He's already dead. He's in the underworld forever and ever. And the same goes for us. What would happen if we didn't reach for our phones when we felt bored? What would happen if we didn't feel like we constantly needed to check email all the time? Nothing would happen. We'd be fine. And so the beauty of this message is that we don't have to be like Tantalus. We can take a step back. We can ask ourselves, are these urges, are these cravings real? Or is it something that we have built up for ourselves, which has now imprisoned us in this constant cycle of desire and distraction? You know, one of the other issues that you may not have thought about is that Tantalus simply may not have realized he was dead. (laughs) That's (laughs) potentially true. Yeah. Also ridiculous, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. Well, depends on your point of view. I'm a uh, someone who I'm, I'm a licensed medicine man and spirit guide. So I do a lot of work with people that are, shall we say, not here. And um, this kind of some people's minds don't go there, but we'll we'll leave that for another discussion. But I can tell you from personal experience that what we think of as dead people are, are, are uh, they're often not very dead. <laughs> so <laughs> another, another conversation, but uh, I often tell my students that a, a, an adult can be encapsulated in the statement that an adult says what they mean and means what they say. And I found it very interesting that you shared being indistractable means to strive to do as you say you will do. Right. How much of the challenges of distraction that people face today do you feel are the products of not growing up and taking responsibility for themselves and meeting their personal relationship and professional obligations? It's it's a great point. You know that is the definition of of becoming indistractable is being the kind of person who does what they say they're going to do. It's about living with personal integrity. You know, as much as we would never lie to our friends, we would never lie to our children, we would never lie to our colleagues. We lie to ourselves all the time. We say we're going to do one thing, we don't. Right? We say we're going to exercise, we skip it. We say we're going to eat right, right? We know all this stuff already. Yeah. So, so it really is about living with personal integrity. It's about doing whatever it is you say you're going to do. So it's not my job to tell you what your values should be. Uh, don't look for your values with somebody else's lens. Look for your values based on what you think you should do. And so the second step to becoming indistractable, we talked about the first step is about uh, mastering these internal triggers. The second step is about making time for traction. 
And so this involves, so, so let's, let's back up a second. When we look at the entomology of the word distraction, the opposite of distraction is not focus. In fact, the opposite of distraction is traction. They both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Yes. So, so traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not what you intend. And so the second step to becoming indistractable is to make time for traction by turning our values into time. So whatever it is that you want to do with your time is fine as long as you plan to do it. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So if you want time to live out your values of taking care of yourself, if that's one of your values, do you have time for proper rest on your schedule? Do you have time for proper nutrition, for hygiene, for mental health? Do you take care of your body? Is that on your schedule? It's not just going to happen. And I want people to actually put this in their calendar, to have a time box calendar. Now, people say, oh, that's very rigid. I can't keep a calendar. Well, do you want to be distracted or not? Because the fact of the matter is, you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I don't mind if you have three, four, five hours, five days even to do something. You can have a big old block of time where you plan to just do something. That's fine. But without defining with intent what you want to do with your time, everything becomes a distraction. So I'm not just saying be productive all day. I have time from w- w- with my wife. You know, This weekend, we have a four-hour block together. I call this plan spontaneity. We don't know what we're going to do. We're going to be spontaneous. But because I have planned the time, I know what I will not be doing. I will not be checking my phone. I will not be working. I will not be doing anything but being fully present with my wife. And so this is a really important concept when it comes down to it. You know, people love to complain about this problem of distraction, but where the rubber hits the road is, could I see your values? What's important to you? Could I know that by looking at your calendar? If you think about how much time and money people spend on protecting their things, right? We put locks on our doors. We have security systems on our cars. We put our money in vaults. But when it comes to our time, oh yeah, come and get it. Take as much as you want. The news media, your boss, your kids, your spouse, of course, all these technologies, all of these things will eat up your day if you don't plan in advance what you want to do with it. Yeah, there's an old saying in the goal goal setting field or the science of goals goal setting. You've probably heard it before. And the saying is if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. So Right. And I would add if you don't plan your day, somebody's gonna plan it for you. Well, yeah. And uh <laughs> there's another one. If you're not working for your own goals, rest assured you are working for your bosses. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's really about intent. It's about sitting down and asking yourself. How do I live out my values, right? Is spending time with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends is important. Is that time on your calendar or are you just going to let it happen? In which case, it's not going to happen, right? So we need to make yeah. time for those things. You know, a lot of a lot of our discussion here and our discussions about, you know, uh, being an adult. And it was interesting because when you dis- – was it uh, the theory of the three psychological uh, nutrients? Was mm-hmm. it uh, yeah. desti- destination theory? Uh, self-determination theory. Self-determination theory. What's the author of that? Desi and Ryan. D-E-S-S-I-A-N? D-E-C-I. D-E-C-I-A-N, Ryan? And Ryan. Yes, two different people. Oh, okay. Desi and Ryan. Okay. It's very interesting because 
I actually have a form that I use almost every day in my coaching that has three columns. The first column is individuation. The second column is competency. And the third column is relationship. And when I'm coaching people, I find that almost every single challenge that they're dealing with in their life is because they either have not become an adult and take responsibility for themselves, which in Jungian psychology means to individuate, to become someone uniquely whole unto yourself, not to be caught in mommies and daddies, shoulds or shouldn'ts, or not to be trapped in religious ideas that aren't serving you, etc. Wherever you're giving your power away and using the words that I have to, that means you're playing out the uh, life of a child. I choose to are the words of an adult. And I've seen many different articles by various experts in the field of psychology and, and related sciences estimating that only about 10% of the adults on this planet have actually reached individuation where, mm. they're, where they're whole, uh, act, self-actuated adults. So it, it seems that a lot of the issues that we have with all these distractions and that you're really addressing have to do with people not really stepping into their boots, getting clear and what their dream goals and objectives are and managing themselves as an adult. And as a guy who owns a worldwide business, I can tell you I've had to fire a hell of a lot of people because mm. they were surfing the internet and doing all sorts of things, expecting me to pay them and not getting their work done, which is ultimately behaving like a child. Yeah. No, I think you, you, you raise a great point. I mean, what a competitive advantage is it to be the kind of person who just does what they say they're going to do? I mean, this is why I call the skill of the century, right? You know, as an employer, you love those people, right? You don't oh, even yeah. have to go above and beyond. Just deliver what you say you are going to do, for God's sakes. If you yeah. could just do that, right? Don't make promises you don't keep. And if you make a promise, you have to keep it. Do what you say you're going to do. Live with personal integrity. That That is a very important part of this. And again, this isn't about anyone telling you what you should do with your time, what you should, what your value should be. It's about taking the values you already have and making sure that you turn them into time. And so where I think a lot of people get tripped up is they start creating these vision boards or these five-year plans or these big hairy goals that require so much work thinking about, whereas opposed to, I advise how about we start with next week, right? Let's take this template. I, I made this online tool that makes this very, very easy. I can give you a link for the show notes. Doesn't It's totally free. You don't even have to sign up for anything. The idea is that I want you to put on this calendar what your ideal week looks like. Why is this so important? Because this is the only way to know what is a distraction, right? How, how, why is that? Can't I know what distraction is? Don't I already know? No, you don't. If you don't know what is traction, for every minute of your day, how could you know what is a distraction? Right. You don't know what you got distracted from. And so that's why this practice of simply time blocking your day, figuring out what it is, how you want to spend your time, not in five years, not when you retire and have a perfect life in Waikiki or wherever you want to retire, but next week, how can you live out your values to be the kind of person you want to be next week? What would that look like? Yeah. You know, one of the big challenges that I see as an educator, an employer, and a therapist, is very few people actually have ever really thought about what their values are or written them down. They really have 
almost no idea of what their values are. And when I sit down and I'm talking about even multimillionaire executives of corporations, they might know what the values of the company are, but their personal values, until I start asking them questions about it, which often takes several rounds of questioning, like, why do you buy that? Why do you go to this church? Or why do you not go to this church? Or whatever. Very Mm -hmm. few people are conscious of what their values are. And there's a set of universal principles I think you'd find interesting. If you go to arnoldpatent.com, you can print out the universal principles. But in essence, what he says in one of them, if you don't like what's happening in your life, look carefully at what you're choosing unconsciously. And I think that when we're talking about all these distractions, a lot of these are unconscious choices. People, people, it's like, for example, when I'm coaching somebody and maybe they're addicted to sugar or, and, they, and they don't realize it. So I'll say, okay, we need to start getting the sugar out of your diet. So I build what's called a rainbow bridge. And I say, okay, go. The first thing I want you to do is just go from white sugar to brown sugar. Just do what mm. you normally do. Let's just get in the habit of making a change. And then from there, I build a rainbow bridge in progressive steps so that they can get off sugar without going through a lot of addictive withdrawal and, and making too big of a change in their environment or, or in their life at one time. But people will come back to me and keep eating the white sugar and not even getting the brown sugar. And they're paying me a lot. I charge $750 an hour. So it's not, you know, I'm not a guy you don't want to listen to if you're paying me for coaching. But they'll keep coming back and saying, oh, I'm, I I say, I'm I'm looking at your diet log here. You're still eating piles of white sugar. Why are you doing that? And the most common answer I get with all these issues, I don't know. Until Mm. you just told me, I didn't realize I was still doing it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and so yeah. really there that hinges right back to unconscious choices and not having clearly stated values. Yeah. And I, th- I think part of it is that stating your values can be very difficult. That's a hard exercise. What what I think is, is the good first step is to, when you think about the fact that, look, every human being on the face of the earth, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you all, everyone has the same number of hours in a day. So that's, I think a good unit of measurement. It's a good place to start and say, okay, out of your 24-hour day times seven days in a week, how much time do you want to allocate to the different things that are important to you in your life? So that's where I talk about these three life domains. At the center is you. The next ring is your relationships. And the third ring is your work. And so when you look at these three life domains, you have to start with you, right? If you can't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of others or do good work. So starting with you, what are all the things that you need to do for yourself to live up to your values. So if values are the attributes of the person you want to become, do you have time for sleep? Do you have time for physical health? Do you have time for all the things that are important to you? So starting with that calendar is a much, much easier thing than having some, you know, grand vision of, of your values. Just start with how you want to allocate your time. Do you have time for your values uh, when it comes to these three life domains, particularly when it comes to the work domain, everyone I talk to in, in the modern workplace, when I ask them, you know, is thinking important for your job? Is, is, is strategizing, is focused work, is, is planning ahead important for your job function? Everybody says yes. And then when I say, well, where's that time on your calendar? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's, yeah. it, we're so bombarded with reacting to things, reacting to emails, reacting to Slack messages, reacting to meetings all day long, that we don't have any time for reflecting. Well, that time needs to be on your calendar as well, or it's just not going to happen. Yes. You know, um, because values is quite a broad thing, just like virtues is, 
I narrow values categories into four key categories. And I tell people, look, if you, you got to remember your yes has no value till you learn to say no. So the four key areas I define as the four doctors. You have to be your own doctor and decide what is happy making for you and schedule time to do it. You have to decide how much movement you need to keep your body healthy and accomplish your your personal, professional, or athletic goals. You have to be clear about what you need to feed your body and make sure you schedule time to do that. You got to be clear about how much rest you need and schedule time to do that. So I feel the minimum values that we need to be careful so so we don't get distracted from these things is what is happy making for me and who am I going to do it with? How much movement do I need? What should I be eating and when should I be eating and how much rest do I need and when am I going to get it? And if you don't have those, you're going to end up having a lot of visits from the pain teacher. I couldn't agree more. Hey, I know you're tight on time. It's been a very fun interview. Thank you. And I love your passion, man. I'm getting you going there. <laughs> Thank and, you. My uh, pleasure. Uh, you know, because I know you got a hard stop and you're a man of time boxes. So uh, <laughs> can you just share where people can get more information or, or whatever you'd like to share as far as people following up, getting books, more resources, uh, whatever you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. So you can learn more about my work and follow me at uh, on my blog. It's at nearandfar.com. And near is spelled like my first name. It's spelled N-I-R. So N-I-R and far.com. And my book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And that's available wherever books are sold. But if you go to indistractable.com, there is a free video course as well as a complimentary 80-page workbook, which we couldn't fit into the manuscript. So now it's it's free on my website. If you go there, you can get that as well. It's at indistractable.com. It's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nir. I really would love to do this again along the way. And knowing you, you'll come out with another book sometime in the near future because I think that's in your your genes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, give me another few years, but I'm I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for all the love you're you're sharing with the world and for being an adult and tackling your problems and and uh, letting us all get some of the benefits of that. And uh uh, keep doing all the great things you're doing. And thanks for sharing with uh, my audience. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Be well. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Nir Ale. Connect with Nir on social media at Nir Ale, that's N-I-R-E-Y-A-L, or via his website, nearandfar.com. You can claim great bonus content from Near to help you navigate your journey to indistractable at nearandfar.com forward slash indistractable forward slash hashtag claim hyphen bonuses. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's new website at checkkiva.com. That's C-H-E-K-I-V-A dot com. That's